Every single U.S. service member is now out of Afghanistan. I can say that with 100% certainty. And I can say with absolute certainty, it's about time. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Rochester, New York, WRFZ. In New Orleans, Louisiana, I hope you're doing okay, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com with an assist from Desi Doyen. But today, it's me, I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, your guest host. And wow, what a time for Brad and Desi to take off. I get it. You know, Labor Day weekend is approaching and they need a vacation. But we're out of Afghanistan. On Monday, the last plane carrying the last troops left Afghanistan. The official word came down from General Kenneth McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, at a Pentagon briefing just moments after that last plane departed. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. While the military evacuation is complete, the diplomatic mission to ensure additional U.S. citizens and eligible Afghans who want to leave continues. And I know that you're going to hear more about that from the State Department shortly. Tonight's withdrawal signifies both the end of the military component of the evacuation, but also the end of the nearly 20-year mission that began in Afghanistan shortly after September 11, 2001. It's a mission that brought Osama bin Laden to a just end, along with many of his al-Qaeda co-conspirators. And it was not, it was not a cheap mission. The cost was 2,461 U.S. service members and civilians killed, and more than 20,000 who were injured. Sadly, that includes 13 U.S. service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. We honor their sacrifice today as we remember their heroic accomplishments. No words from me could possibly capture the full measure of sacrifices uh, and accomplishments of those who served, nor the emotions they're feeling at this moment. But I will say that I'm proud that both my son and I have been a part of it. The last Americans to leave before the midnight deadline, Kabul time, were acting American Ambassador Ross Wilson and Major General Christopher Donahue, the commander of the Army's 82nd Airborne Division. 
A night vision photo of him boarding the plane was released by the military and will surely be an iconic piece of history marking the end of a 20-year war. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the U.S. diplomatic mission to Afghanistan would continue working from Doha, Qatar, on its, quote, relentless efforts to help Americans, foreign nationals, and Afghans who are at risk under Taliban rule to leave. Our commitment to them and to all Americans in Afghanistan and everywhere in the world continues. The protection and welfare of Americans abroad remains the State Department's most vital and enduring mission. If an American in Afghanistan tells us that they want to stay for now, and then in a week or a month or a year, they reach out and say, I've changed my mind, we will help them leave. Additionally, we've worked intensely to evacuate and relocate Afghans who worked alongside us and are at particular risk of reprisal. We've gotten many out, but many are still there. We will keep working to help them. Our commitment to them has no deadline. Third, we will hold the Taliban to its pledge to let people freely depart Afghanistan. The Taliban is committed to let anyone with proper documents leave the country in a safe and orderly manner. They said this privately and publicly many times. We will hold the Taliban to their commitment on freedom of movement for foreign nationals, visa holders, at-risk Afghans. Fourth, we will work to secure their safe passage. That is Secretary of State Tony Blinken, obviously speaking after the last soldiers left Afghanistan. President Biden addresses the nation Tuesday afternoon. We'll share some of that a little later on in the program. But first, I thought it was time to hear from a voice advocating peace. There's been a lot of criticism of President Biden's pullout from Afghanistan, and yeah, some of it deserves to be criticized, frankly. But... Let's not forget, this war raged for 20 years. It went through four administrations. None of the other presidents had the fortitude to follow through on their promises to get us out. Joe Biden did. In just a moment, I'll talk with Stephen Miles, executive director of winwithoutwar.org, to push back on some of the architects of the war who've been putting all the blame on Joe Biden. Believe me, there's plenty of blame to go around. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi on a very important day in American history. After 20 years, we're out of Afghanistan. We should be celebrating, but there are so many reasons we're not. Yep, it's complicated. On the line with us now is Stephen Miles. He is the executive director of the organization called Win Without War. They're at winwithoutwar.org. And as the name would suggest, you guys are, are, are a peace organization, yes? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, we are a, a nationwide network of activists and organizations that are working for a more peaceful and progressive foreign policy for the United States. Uh, you know, we're, we're watching, obviously, it was just yesterday that uh, the last plane with American troops left Afghanistan. Um, is For me, I felt a big sigh of relief. What, what kind of feeling did you have when you, you saw the photograph of the, the last soldier who I guess was a general actually getting on the plane? Yeah, I think a lot of us who, who have worked on Afghanistan um, for a number of years have some really mixed emotions um, about the last couple uh, days, uh, last couple weeks, really. Um, obviously, for many of us, this war uh, has, has been something that needed to end for a very long time. Uh, the U.S. military um, presence was counterproductive. It was not fostering a sustainable peace, as we're clearly seeing. Um, and and the, the toll of this war, um, not just on, has been often talked about, obviously, the, the 2,400-plus U.S. service members who lost their life, the 20,000-plus who were injured, um, but the tens of thousands of, of Afghans who lost their lives, the hundreds of thousands who've had their lives uprooted um, over the 20 years of this war. Um, 40 years, if you go back and include the kind of years the U.S. has been militarily involved, obviously, even long before our invasion in 2001, um, it's been a long time coming this day. That said, it, it, the, the feelings of pure relief are tempered by uh, a feeling of, of solemn responsibility for grappling with the realities of what those four decades of conflict, those two decades of, of occupation um, mean in terms of our moral responsibility going forward, um, a reckoning, a tragic reckoning with the lives lost um, and the human toll of, of this conflict. Um, and I will admit some apprehension about whether or not our country has truly learned the, the lessons of this failure has learned um, the mistakes that we made um, and is going to learn the lessons in a way that means that we never again make this kind of mistake. Yeah. I, um, it, it, all of those things, right? And then you, you think about mm -hmm. the people left behind. I mean, uh, they made a point, our government, of telling us that there are less than 200 American citizens still there, but there are still, there are thousands, many thousands of Afghans who risked their lives, really, to help the Americans during those 20 years, and many of them are stuck. They can't get out. Now, I did hear, I listened to um, Secretary of State Blinken's speech uh, on, on Monday, uh, and, you know, he said that that the, the rescue, or, or I don't know if that, that's the word to use, but that their mm -hmm. efforts to get those people out has not ended and will not end, um, and he did say that they do have some leverage over the Taliban, mostly in terms of monies that have been frozen for a long time, that if they want any of that money released, that they will play ball with us and let them leave. Um, and, and allegedly, the U.S. has gotten some assurances from the Taliban that any Americans, anyone holding an American passport can leave, and even Afghans who want to go will be allowed to leave the country. Do you believe that? I think time's going to tell. Uh, obviously, the Afghan, um, the, the the situation in Afghanistan um, is is very much in flux. The Taliban are still they still have not even formally formed a government yet. Right. So, um, you know, this has all happened very quickly. Uh, and and what what and how they behave is something we're going to have to see in the coming days and weeks. But I think there's a couple things that are very clear. 
Um, obviously, as you mentioned, there's a number of Americans, um, American citizens who, who may still want to leave Afghanistan. Um, the military evacuations have ended, but the U.S. government has immense capabilities um, for, for helping people uh, transit out of situations, and they should continue to use all of those capabilities um, in, in an effort to get everyone out who needs to get out. Um, but obviously, the bigger questions here are the Afghans. Um, look, we have to grapple with the reality that after 20 years of war, um, there are a number of Afghans who, who, who worked with the United States for whom that service was, was uh, met with a promise of the opportunity to, to come to the United States and live in the United States if their, if their lives were later in danger. Um, that, that primarily has been through a program called the SID, the Special Immigrant Visa Program. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just that program. There's other, op- there's other options. Um, and while the, the evacuations over the last two weeks have been an absolutely Herculean effort, over 122,000 individuals evacuated, mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority um, foreign nationals, not American citizens, about 6,000 were American citizens and the rest were citizens of other countries or Afghans. Um, that's a tremendous amount. It's one, it's the largest civilian uh, airlift in U.S. history, um, but it still obviously is not enough. There are individuals who are going to need safe refuge, and the U.S. needs to do everything it can to continue to apply pressure on the Taliban uh, to facilitate the airports in Afghanistan reopening, not just in Kabul, but in other cities where they've begun to reopen to charter flights in some cases. And importantly, uh, the land borders um, with neighboring countries in which we know a number of Afghans will seek uh, refuge. I think it's worth remembering uh, Afghanistan is a country of approximately 40 million people, Mm. around five to six million of them live in Kabul, where the world's attention has been focused for the last several weeks. But the vast majority of people don't live in Kabul, and that includes many folks who may need safe safe refuge. They were never going to get out in the evacuation at at the Kabul airport. Um, and the U.S. has a real obligation to, to try to get those folks out. But one really important point here is that no matter how many uh, people are eventually evacuated, um, how many people are resettled as refugees, the overwhelming number of Afghans are going to remain in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, there are tens of millions of Afghans are going to remain in the country. And Afghanistan right now is on the brink of a major humanitarian crisis that is in no small part thanks to the war that we have waged there for decades. It also is connected to climate to the climate crisis um, and various challenges that Afghanistan's faced because of that. And obviously, there's an emerging economic crisis that you mentioned or you alluded to with the reality that the Afghan government, which was largely dependent on foreign aid for most of its GDP and operations, mm-hmm. um, is now largely cut off from that, given that the Taliban's role uh, in the government. And so it's going to be amongst the most complicated humanitarian crises that we face. Um, in a really long time. And the United States has a deep moral obligation to make sure we stay engaged. And just because our troops are no longer there does not mean that there are not ways the United States can stay engaged. Um, There are humanitarian organizations on the ground doing life-saving work as we speak. We need to continue to support those. And ultimately, yes, we need to continue to keep our doors open. Uh, We need to continue to welcome Afghan refugees and we need to continue to support our refugee efforts in the region as well. Absolutely. And I should mention, um, at, at the website, winwithoutwar.org, you have a, uh, a petition for, to, to Congress asking them, uh, it's called Billions for Bullets Should Go to Helping People in Afghanistan. Um, what is this about? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you flagged that. I mean, look, I think one of the more dramatic things we've all seen over the last several weeks was the complete collapse of the Afghan security forces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are forces that the United States has spent upwards of uh, over $80 billion on over the years, building, training, equipping, literally paying the salaries. Um, obviously, much of that money is now gone, but there is at least $3 billion in unspent funds that the government has already, technical term is appropriated, but the government has basically already passed in previous years. There's $3 billion that was supposed to still go to those security forces. And then there's another $3 billion that was in the president's budget for the next year, the next fiscal year, which starts October 1st, that Congress is now going to decide how to spend. All told, you put those together and you have about $6 billion that was specifically earmarked for the Afghan security forces, which of course no longer exists. There is no conceivable way to spend that $6 billion on the Afghan security forces because they no longer exist. There's a lot of folks in Washington who suddenly see a giant piggy bank that they can use to buy another fighter jet or maybe another uh, ship for the Navy. That's unconscionable. This was money that was supposed to go to be spent on Afghanistan. And now as we face this humanitarian crisis, as we have significant costs ahead of us for refugee resettlement, for the evacuations that we just saw. This is $6 billion that every penny of it should be spent on helping the Afghan people. Right. Uh, you know, um, uh, Stephen Miles, executive director of One Without War, th- This I, I was listening to some of the coverage this morning, and there's um, obviously the U.S. military left behind a lot of equipment, um, 20 years worth of of military equipment um and i guess they made a a a decision a a tactical decision that it was more important to get people out than this equipment and the stuff that was left at the airport at least that what they what what they say is they demilitarized it basically they rendered much of what they left behind at least at the airport inoperable um, I saw a statement from from the former guy uh, saying we should we should go back into Afghanistan and in order to get back our equipment. Um, <laughs> I, I, I it doesn't even it really it doesn't even warrant a comment, but I just had to bring it up and ask what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think no one has less credibility to talk about what should have been done in Afghanistan than Donald Trump. I think um, folks are rightly focused on some of the mistakes that the Biden administration made mm-hmm. in the final days here. And we also obviously need to remember that this war started under President Bush and continued under President Obama yep. and examine those mistakes. But there is no universe in which Donald Trump <laughs> did not make mistake after mistake after mistake. The deadliest years of this war for Afghan civilians were under Donald Trump. The, the deals that, that, that were cut, that cut out the Afghan government, that undermined things, were, were done under Donald Trump. The, the SIV uh, resettlement process that left so many people in Afghanistan who should have already been resettled in the yep. United States and never needing to be evacuated, that was under Donald Trump. So the, the former president has absolutely no credibility to talk about this. And, 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 you know, his words should frankly just be completely disregarded at this point. Now, there is an interesting question about what what is going on with this military hardware. I think a couple of things are important to note. Um, as the U.S. military was withdrawing, the, the technical term for this is retrograde, um, okay. but as they were withdrawing over the course of the last several months, um, they will have brought significant amounts of U.S. military equipment home and other aspects of U.S. military equipment that they couldn't bring home um, were either 
given to the Afghan security forces or destroyed at the time and sold for, for scrap. This is something we saw in Iraq. It's something um, that, that happens pretty, pretty regularly. The challenge here is that those Afghan security forces did one of two things. They either uh, took those, those vehicles and planes and left the country, as we saw in a number of cases. There are a number of these pieces of hardware in Uzbekistan at the moment, for, for example. Um, or uh, they left them as as they were um, uh, standing down, withdrawing um, in 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 the fight over the last several weeks of, of combat. And so now the Taliban do have their hands on a significant amount of of military equipment that the U.S. government supplied to the Afghan security forces. There are um, things that are that are fairly innocuous, like like vehicles, Humvees, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, there's also significant military hardware in terms of uh, helicopters in terms of fixed wing aircraft in terms of weapons and munitions um just a, and, uh, you know i think folks are only starting to come to terms with the ungodly amount of weaponry that we flooded into the country um but but unfortunately that now is mostly in the hands of the taliban um and obviously part of the concern is what the taliban will do with that but also that they may sell that off on secondary arms markets oh. one of the more troubling things of all this is how absurdly familiar this all feels. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that long ago that the U.S. military was blowing up former U.S. military equipment that we'd given to the Iraqi government um, military that was now in the hands of ISIS. And so we were blowing up, you know, former U.S. military equipment um, that ISIS had stolen um, and was, was using in Iraq and Syria. I mean, this is a common pattern of flooding countries um, with U.S. military hardware only to see that military weaponry end up not in the hands of who we intended it to, but in the hands of people who are, quote unquote, our enemies. Right. And, and the, then we have a problem. The way we get out of this problem, ultimately, is to stop flooding the world with weapons. If we stop flooding the world with weapons, there will not be U.S. weapons that we could worry about ending up in the wrong hands. Obviously, we have a specific problem in the moment about what to do about this hardware um, in Afghanistan, but we need to zoom out and understand this is not a unique situation to Afghanistan. And this is what happens when you are the world's arm dealer. Yep. When you are flooding the world with weaponry, a lot of it is going to end up in the hands of people who you would not like to see with this kind of weaponry. Right, right. And in fact, you know, I can't help but think about the cost. And and there are different types of cost. Obviously, there's the cost in human lives, which is the most valuable mm-hmm. of all. And we know that um, we the U.S. lost, what, about 2,500 um, uh, soldiers over there uh, and, and a couple of tens of thousands of injuries on top of all the civilian lives and the Afghan lives and everything else. But I'm looking at, at again at winwithoutwar.org and you've got uh, a counter in the middle of the, the front page mm-hmm. on the different, the cost of the war on terror, military costs of the war since 2001, which is over $3 trillion. You have interest on war debt since 2001, which is eight hundred and almost $879 billion. Um, care for war on terror veterans. You have homeland security costs. Total cost of wars since 2001, $5,452,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000
to pay for basic infrastructure. This nation has fallen so far behind the rest of the world, where we used to lead the world. And they're talking about this is money we can't spend. But boy, there never seems to be a shortage of money to spend on weapons and war. Yeah, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, look, in terms of dollar amounts, um, you know, there's different estimates out there. The ones on our website that you referenced there are numbers that come from the National Priorities Project, right. which is a fantastic organization um, that, that does tracking of this kind of this expenditure. There are other estimates by the Cost of War Project out of Brown University um, that puts the cost a little bit higher, over wow. $6 trillion. You know, some of this is 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 hard to put a picture, put a, put a number on because you're estimating the future costs that we've already incurred. We know we are going to incur um, hundreds of billions of dollars moving forward in veterans care costs for the veterans of these wars. We don't know exactly what that number will be um, because there is a long tail on this. We are just now peaking for the cost of the Vietnam War veterans. Wow. Think about that. We wow. only recently, within the last decade, stopped the VA stopped playing the last claim on the Civil War. Um, they were paying until, until very very recently, a claim, the, the last claim related to, to the daughter of a Civil War veteran. These are costs that, that in a financial sense, will be borne for decades. Um, and we don't know the full feature, the, the full reality of what they will be. As you said, they obviously pale in comparison to the human costs here. The tens of thousands, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of lives lost in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen, in Somalia, uh, the thousands of American soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen who've lost their lives, the tens of thousands injured. Those, those costs are enormous. Um, and and it's, it, we, we can't even really put them into comprehension. But the financial costs here, uh, are also staggering. And at a time when we are talking about suddenly beginning to make some of the investments that we haven't made as a country because we've been spending this money on war, right. uh, it, it, is, it is time to grapple with that choice that we've made. It really is. And, and so I look at, you know, in every budget, even with the Democrats in charge, it seems like every year the money they allocate for the military goes up. Um, Will this change that if we're done, we're out of Afghanistan? Shouldn't it come down precipitously now? You would think so. You know, we're, we're I think, the only country in the world that spends more in our military when we end wars than when, we, <laughs> than when we're fighting them. Wow. But but nonetheless, no, we're, we're on the verge of spending three quarters of a trillion dollars this year for war. Um, the president's budget, which we should note, was larger than any budget uh, that Donald Trump spent at the Pentagon is not enough for Republicans. Um, so they led an effort in the Senate to add $25 billion to that. That's $37 billion more dollars oh than we spent God. last year. Um, the House of Representatives is, is likely to follow suit tomorrow. I mean, this is an, we, we, we no longer have a military mission in Afghanistan and somehow we're going to spend $37 billion more on war than we did last year. I mean, it is almost incomprehensible. The, the only years since World War II, that we have spent more on the military uh, than we than we are going to spend this year are a few years under Barack Obama that were the absolute peak of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan around 2010 when we had you know 150,000 plus troops um, in, in Iraq, 100,000 troops. Um, sorry, we were drawing down our troops at that point in Iraq, but 100,000 troops in, in Afghanistan. You know, we had well over 150,000 troops across the two of them. We were fighting two active wars at the time, um, and obviously spending a lot of money doing so. 
But other than that, we're currently, despite both of those wars being over, on pace to spend more than we did at any point during the Cold War, including the peaks of the Vietnam War, the peak of the Korean War, you know, the, the Reagan buildup. You can pick your, your time when we were spending a lot of money on the military and war, and, and we're still spending more than that, in, in most cases by well over $100 billion. Uh, this is a staggering amount of money that we are spending on war in this country. And it is at a time when almost none of the threats we face as a society are solvable with the U.S. military. Right. You know, there is no solution at the Pentagon for climate change. There is no right. solution to growing authoritarianism around the world. There's no solution at the Pentagon for right-wing domestic terrorism, for right-wing violence. You know, we had an insurrection in this country, a deadly attack on the United States Capitol. This is, yet we are spending three quarters of a trillion dollars to buy more fighter jets, to buy more aircraft carriers. These, these are programs that are so divorced from the reality of the threats we face. 600,000 people have died from the global pandemic. Fighter jets don't do much against the global pandemic, yet the budget that we put towards preventing the next pandemic is, is not even pennies on the dollar. It is fractions of a penny on the dollar compared to what we are going to continue to spend on war even after these wars have ended. Could some senator or congressman conceivably um, uh, introduce legislation to cut the military spending since, as of yesterday, we are no longer actively involved in a war, allegedly, on paper anyway? And, um, you know, I, I, I remember the days of Dennis Kucinich, who, who always mm-hmm. lobbied for a Department of Peace. Um, are there any you know, champions of peace in Congress today who might do something like that, who might stand up and say, wait a minute, we ended this war, let's cut that budget and put those monies to better use? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have seen a number of progressive champions in Congress making that exact argument. Um, two, two leaders in the House in particular, Congresswoman Barbara Lee mm. uh, and Congressman Mark Pocan, mm. um, have been really outspoken. They've formed a caucus to work on this issue. Just as recently as earlier this week, they released another letter with their colleagues on this issue. They last year had legislation get a vote to cut the Pentagon's budget by 10 percent. Um, they have been champions on this and are fighting uh, the good fight here to to do the right thing. We need more of their colleagues to join us. Um, We need more Democrats to get on board. And and unfortunately, what we ultimately need is for the the leadership of the Democratic Party to be more concerned with with progressive positions on this and what they need to do to get progressives on board than they are with Republicans. Because right now what they're going to do is increase the legislation, increase the budget to get Republican votes because they, they don't want to cut it to get progressive votes. You know, ultimately, that is an absurd situation to be in. We have to build more power. We have to demand a different system. We have to fight harder for the change that we seek. But we do have some really great champions. And over in the Senate, Senator Bernie Sanders has Mm. been a a tremendous leader on this. He had similar legislation um, last year to what was in the House. There is more work to be done. We have some great champions, um, new members of Congress, Cori Bush, Mondaire Jones, Jamal Bowman, have all been outspoken about these issues. We need to we need more of them speaking up. We need to support uh, them and 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 rally around their calls for change. Um, and and we need to we need to make sure that these voices only grow louder. Without a doubt, Stephen Miles, thank you so much for for coming on the broadcast and talking about this. It's you know this is a weird day 
uh, we sh- I, I mean, mm-hmm. the war is a 20-year war is over. I, I, again, I feel a sense of relief mixed with, you know, sadness for the people left behind. But I also am trying to stay realistic about it and know that um, they weren't in great shape before we got there. It's not like we went in and broke it. It was already broken. And we also went in fighting a losing battle. I mean, England first and the, and the Russians next. Um, there's a reason they call Afghanistan what the, the graveyard of empires um, because it very nearly destroyed us, if not nearly. Um, you know, this war took a huge toll on us along across all uh, areas from money to human lives to our national psyche. I mean, the fact that we were at war in this country for 20 years with no, no way to win. What, what would, how would we have won in Afghanistan? What would victory have looked like? There wasn't one. It's right. been very clear for a very long time that there was new, no U.S. military solution to the challenges we faced in Afghanistan. Yet year after year, we tried to bomb our way to peace in an absolutely futile effort. Um, it is long past time we recognize that. And it, it, the president deserves uh, our, our gratitude and support for recognizing that truth and ending the war, ending the U.S. war. Unfortunately, that doesn't end the challenges we face in Afghanistan. Uh, It doesn't end our moral obligation after using Afghanistan as a battlefield for four decades. It doesn't end the the necessity of repaying the debt um, that we we owe the Afghan people. There's going to be bills coming due in in the future days, both in terms of resettling refugees from Afghanistan here and supporting and alleviating the humanitarian crisis that we helped cause. Um, and in, in, in hard, hard work to grapple with the lessons of what this war means. You know, we long ago made mistakes that brought us to this point. Mm-hmm. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. yep. was famously the only vote against the 2001 authorization yep. for military force that launched this war. She said in that, in that speech defending that vote, let us not become the evil that we are addressing. Right. And maybe getting the words the words uh, a little jumbled there. But but the point is that's what happened. We we have allowed this war to become expansive and in, in a sad horrible twist of fate it appears that one of the last acts of this war was a US drone strike that killed an entire um, a fam- extended family, seven children, 10, 10 people. Um, we need to understand that that this war had dramatic costs. Well, without a doubt, but can, we, can, let me ask you about that because mm-hmm, that drone mm-hmm. strike, if I if I'm understanding it correctly, took out a vehicle filled with at least one, possibly a, a few suicide bombers who were on their way to the airport to blow up more people to kill more people. So the 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 drone strike took out the vehicle, which then set off the explosions inside the car. And that obviously killed a lot of people in the surrounding areas. Is that is that on us? It, it's actually it's actually untrue. Uh, oh, sorry, it's it? actually unclear okay. right now if okay. that's if that's exactly what happened. Okay, um, you know that is that was the first official story. Um, this happened in Kabul, where there are a number of reporters, and reports uh, since then have indicated that the U.S. military's version of events may not have been accurate, mm. that there may mm. not have been a secondary explosion, that this, this may not have been actually uh, an ISIS individual in this car. Oh, really? Um, so we, we don't know the full details. 
And the reason I say it's ironic is because that, that is the reality of, of how this war has played out. We have seen time and time again um, attacks that, that we were told were combatants that, that turned out to be innocent civilians. We've seen attacks that did in fact t- target combatants, but in, in doing so killed a number of innocent people on, 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 um, as part of them. Look, the reality said long ago is that war is hell. Yeah. Uh, there is no way to fight a war that doesn't involve death, destruction, and killing. That exactly. is the defining features of a war. That is why this war needed to end. Um, that is why we need to grapple with the horrible realities of what happened. And you know, time will tell the specific details ultimately of this attack. But whatever the circumstances, whether it was a foiled um, a, a potential attack on the airport or whether it was just a horrible horrible mistake. The end result is that, yet again, innocent Afghan civilians bore the price of this war. Right. That's the story of this war, and, and that's, that's what we need to grapple with. All the more reason for us to hopefully learn from this and, and know that that's what happens when you wage war. That's what happens when you mm-hmm. go bomb, rain down bombs on a, anyone, a foreign country, anyone. People die. Innocent people die. Yeah. And may we never do that again. Stephen Miles, thank thank you again for your words of wisdom. I think they're much needed on a day like today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. So what happens next after we end a war? We hear from the president. Joe Biden addressed the nation Tuesday afternoon. We'll hear some of what he had to say next. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, your guest host today on the broadcast. You're listening to the broadcast, the end of the endless war edition. I'm Nicole Sandler in for Brad and Desi today. I thought we'd end with as much of President Biden's speech about the end of the war as we can fit in before the end of the hour. I'll post a link to the full thing at bradblog.com where you can find this show posted as well. This is a day we've been waiting for for 20 years. The corporate media, including Uh, the alleged friendlies over at MSNBC, well, the daytime crew anyway, Nicole Wallace, they're all over Biden, not grateful to him for ending the quagmire, but blaming him. Don't forget, Nicole Wallace was communications director for the regime that sent us into Afghanistan in the first place and kept us there for the remainder of those two terms. Then Obama escalated the war. Remember his surge, which Biden opposed? Then, of course, the former guy who set the stage for the mess of an ending. But they're all blaming Joe Biden. The last time I was in for Brad, I talked about the blame game. It was in full swing then, and some things just don't change. So today, I will say thank you, President Biden, for finally ending the up-until-now endless war. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended. 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. We completed one of the biggest airlifts in history with more than 120,000 people evacuated to safety. That number is more than double what most experts thought were possible. No nation, no nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. The only the United States had the capacity and the will and ability to do it, and we did it today. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill 
bravely and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. And they did it facing a crush of enormous crowds seeking to leave the country. And they did it knowing ISIS-K terrorists, sworn enemies of the Taliban, were lurking in the midst of those crowds. And still, the women and men of the United States military, our diplomatic corps, and intelligence professionals did their job and did it well, risking their lives, not for professional gains, but to serve others. Not in a mission of war, but in a mission of mercy. 20 service members were wounded in the service of this mission. 13 heroes gave their lives. I was just at Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer. We owe them and their families a debt of gratitude we can never repay, but we should never, ever, ever forget. In April, I made a decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. The assumption was that more than 300,000 Afghan National Security Forces that we had trained over the past two decades and equipped would be a strong adversary in their civil wars with the Taliban. That assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. But I still instructed our national security team to prepare for every eventuality, even that one. And that's what we did. So we were ready when the Afghan security forces, after two decades of fighting for their country and losing thousands of their own, did not hold on as long as anyone expected. We were ready when they and the people of Afghanistan watched their own government collapse and the president flee amid the corruption and malfeasance, handing over the country to their enemy, the Taliban, and significantly increasing the risk to U.S. personnel and our allies. As a result, to safely extract American citizens before August 31st, as well as embassy personnel, allies and partners, and those Afghans who had worked with us and fought alongside of us for 20 years, I had authorized 6,000 troops, American troops, to Kabul to help secure the airport. As General McKenzie said, this is the way the mission was designed. It was designed to operate under severe stress and attack, and that's what it did. Since March, we reached out 19 times to Americans in Afghanistan with multiple warnings and offers to help them leave Afghanistan, all the way back as far as March. After we started the evacuation 17 days ago, we did initial outreach and analysis and identified around 5,000 Americans who had decided earlier to stay in Afghanistan, but now wanted to leave. Our Operation Allied Rescue ended up getting more than 5,500 Americans out we got out thousands of citizens and diplomats 
from those countries that went into Afghanistan with us to get bin Laden. We got out locally employed staff of the United States Embassy and their families, totaling roughly 2,500 people. We got thousands of Afghan translators and interpreters and others who supported the United States out as well. Now we believe that about 100 to 200 Americans remain in Afghanistan with some intention to leave. Most of those who remain are dual citizens, longtime residents who had early decided to stay because of their family roots in Afghanistan. The bottom line, 90 percent of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. Secretary of State Blinken is leading the continued diplomatic efforts to ensure safe passage for any American, Afghan partner, or foreign national who wants to leave Afghanistan. In fact, just yesterday, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution that sent a clear message about the international community expects the Taliban to deliver on moving forward, notably freedom of travel, freedom to leave. And together, we are joined by over 100 countries that are determined to make sure the Taliban upholds those commitments. It will include ongoing efforts in Afghanistan to reopen the airport, as well as overland routes, allowing for continued departure to those who want to leave and deliver humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. The Taliban has made public commitments broadcast on television and radio across Afghanistan on safe passage for anyone wanting to leave, including those who worked alongside Americans. We don't take them by their word alone, but by their actions. And we have leverage to make sure those commitments are met. Let me be clear. Leaving August the 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. My predecessor, the former president, signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative government arrangement with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, among those who just took control of Afghanistan. By the time I came to office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half of the country the previous administration's agreement said that if we stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we were left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice. 
between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military lift operations at Kabul airport was based on the unanimous recommendation of my civilian and military advisors, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all the service chiefs, and the commanders in the field. Their recommendation was that the safest way to secure the passage of the remaining Americans and others out of the country was not to continue with 6,000 troops on the ground in harm's way in Kabul, but rather to get them out through non-military means. In the 17 days that we operated in Kabul, after the Taliban seized power, we engaged in an around-the-clock effort to provide every American the opportunity to leave. Our State Department was working 24-7, contacting and talking, and in some cases, walking Americans into the airport. Again, more than 5,500 Americans were airlifted out. And for those who remain, we will make arrangements to get them out if they so choose. As for the Afghans, we and our partners have airlifted 100,000 of them. No country in history has done more to airlift out the residents of another country than we have done. We will continue to work to help more people leave the country who are at risk. We're far from done. For now, I urge all Americans to join me in grateful prayer for our troops and diplomats and intelligence officers who carried out this mission of mercy in Kabul and a tremendous risk with such unparalleled results, an, air, an airlift that evacuated tens of thousands to a network of volunteers and veterans who helped identify those needing evacuation, guide them to the airport, and provided them for their support along the way. We're going to continue to need their help. We need your help, and I'm looking forward to meeting with you. And to everyone who is now offering, or who will offer, to welcome Afghan allies to their homes around the world, including in America, we thank you. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner. And couldn't this have been done, have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we'd begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown in confidence and control of the government, and it still would have been very difficult and dangerous mission. The bottom line is there is no evacuation, evacuation from the end of a war that you can run without the kinds of complexities, challenges, and threats we faced. None. There are those who would say we should have stayed indefinitely. 
for years on end. They ask, why don't we just keep doing what we were doing? Why do we have to change anything? The fact is, everything had changed. My predecessor had made a deal with the Taliban. When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices. Follow the agreement of the pre previous administration and extend it to have or extend to have more time for people to get out. Or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war. To those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one to make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. And they were based in Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, over a decade ago. Al-Qaeda was decimated. I respectfully suggest you ask yourself this question. If we'd been attacked on September 11, 2001, from Yemen instead of Afghanistan, would we have ever gone to war in Afghanistan? Even though the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the year 2001? I believe the honest answer is no. That's because we had no vital interest in Afghanistan other than to prevent an attack on America's homeland and their fr our friends. And that's true today. We succeeded in what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade ago. Then we stayed for another decade. It was time to end this war. This is a new world. The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. The fundamental obligation of a president, in my opinion, is to defend and protect America, not against threats of 2001, but against the threats of 2021 and tomorrow. That is the guiding principle behind my decisions about Afghanistan. I simply do not believe that the safety and security of America is enhanced by continuing to deploy thousands of American troops and spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. But I also know that the threat from terrorism continues in its pernicious and evil nature. But it's changed, expanded to other countries. Our strategy has to change, too. We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities. 
which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground, or very few if needed. We've shown that capacity just in the last week. We struck ISIS-K remotely, days after they murdered 13 of our service members and dozens of innocent Afghans. And to ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet. As Commander-in-Chief, I firmly believe the best path to guard our safety and our security lies in a tough, unforgiving, targeted, precise strategy that goes after terror where it is today, not where it was two decades ago. That's what's in our national interest. And here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up America's competitive to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. And we can do both. Fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more in this competition in the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. President Joe Biden making the speech that I think most of us have been waiting for for close to 20 years. You can hear the rest of it posted at bradblog.com. And that does it for us for today. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thanks for hanging with me. You can find my program anytime at nicolesandler.com. Explore the site, listen, have fun, or hear my live show weekdays at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific on the Progressive Voices Network, on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. You get the idea. It's based at nicolesandler.com. Until next time, as Brad always says, good luck, world. We really need it.